This is the third episode of the Medill Reports podcast. I'm Ariane Nettles. I'm Kevin Stark. We've got an interesting show for you this week. Chicago has been in the news after a video was released showing police shooting 17-year-old Laquan McDonald. Our reporters have been covering the city's reaction. Protests have been going on since Tuesday. Check out medillreports.org for more. Protests are on our minds, so for this week's podcast, we bring you several stories of local advocacy. While the reaction to the officer being charged with murder is still breaking, we're going to look at a few other actions. As I'm sure you've heard, in early November, football players at the University of Missouri decided to boycott practices and games in support of the campus-wide movement, Concerned Student 1950. As a result of the movement and related protests, University President Tim Wolf resigned. The boycott by the Missouri football team is not the first of its kind, though. In 1980, Northwestern athletes took a similar stand against racial injustice. It's been 35 years, and Shane Monahan spoke with three members of that team about the legacy of their stand and how it fits into larger history of college athletes fighting against racial injustice. As far as we were concerned, not only did we feel there was this unequal treatment, but we also felt that there was a historical context to that as well. Some things, negative things, were being put on some of the African-American players. And I don't know if it was racially motivated, but it was, it may have seen that way at the time. On this day, November 4th, 2015, we, Concerned Student 1950, demand the the immediate removal of Tim Wolf from offices as president of the University of Missouri system. Those first two voices could be any one of the University of Missouri protesters and football players, but they are actually from Joseph Webb and Donald Johnson two former Northwestern University football players who were part of a similar stand against institutional racism in 1980. Webb and Johnson were part of a group of 31 athletes that made up the organization Black Athletes United for Light. During the fall of 1980, BAUL, as it was also referred to, submitted a list of grievances to the Northwestern administration. The grievances asked the administration to confront the unequal treatment of African-American athletes at Northwestern. Dana Hemphill, member of BAUL and one of the first black quarterbacks to play in the Big Ten, said that the goal was to contribute to the campus at large in a positive way. It was a similar moment. It, it defined who we were. It changed the way black athletes were being treated at Northwestern. In 1980, apartheid and South Africa and funding for African-American student initiatives were of great concern for Northwestern athletes who were both politically active and intellectually curious. Also, players said that there were times when the climate on the campus could be polarizing. You know, you felt the segregated feeling when you came on the campus of Northwestern, you know, people kind of sitting at the tables, you know, the cafeteria tables, you know, by themselves. So that was sort of underlined. I don't think there was any, like, any overt racism or anything like that, but you, you, you did feel that. You're at an environment at Northwestern in which we, we actually perceived as hostile as, as a cultural community. And we saw the campus as, as very polarizing, and it was kind of us against them and the, and the, and the football experience, which is an extension of that antagonistic environment and culture that we felt a part of. During the time, Northwestern football was in one of its worst stretches in school history. Third-year head coach Rick Venturi and the Wildcats were coming off of just one win in two seasons and hurtling towards another tough season in the Big Ten. 
Coaching decisions had made the African-American members of the team feel they were having a different experience from that of their white counterparts. Incidents reported by the Daily Northwestern included pressuring players to return from injury before ready, dismissing African-American players from the team for minor offenses, remarks by Venturi that he wished he could get rid of the entire senior class of African-American athletes, and reprimanding African-American players for showing emotion and celebrating on the field. A specific incident occurred with Webb after he had knee surgery. Um, it felt antagonistic to the African-American teammates that I was being asked to come back so early when I was clearly stating that I, was, I wasn't ready to come back. And so the, so the coach had me um, dress in gear and set in the middle of the stands in the, in the heat as, uh, I don't know what it was, a sense of punishment, it's a set an example. Um, and he also uh, said, well, you know, basically, you know, if we're going to give you a scholarship, you know, you're going to have to earn it some way. And so he asked me to, to go around and, and take a bucket and pick up garbage on the, on the, on the field. And so the, the, the African-American players who were witnessing this, they were so infuriated, this is during practice, that they were ready to walk off the field. As a culmination of many incidents similar to what happened to Webb, the players submitted a list of grievances and a proposal of changes to the administration. The proposal was motivated by a desire to achieve equity, but it did not contain a reference to black or white. It was meant to help improve conditions for all student athletes. You know, you're talking about a, a lot of young kids uh, at that time. You know, some of them were 17. I guess at that time I was about 20. And we knew there were going to be consequences. We didn't know if it was going to be us or if it was going to be the, uh, the coaching staff. The proposals, along with a winless season, led to the firing of athletic director John Pott and the entire coaching staff of the football team. Dennis Green was hired to replace Rick Venturi. He was the first African-American head coach in the Big Ten. The players involved with BAUL and the 1980 team are now in their 50s. They all speak about that time period and what happened with a measured perspective. I used to think back on it all the time and, 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 I, and I question whether or not what we did was the right thing because I, I was concerned about those people's families. On the, on the other side of me, I looked at it and said, you know, they had an opportunity to make, a, to make a difference, to make a change, to make lives better for us because that's really in part what they should be there for. Rick Venturi was a, was a young, uh, first head coach at a major institution. Now, at 55, I now appreciate what it was for him to be a 30-year-old father at a major institution for the first time trying to manage this behemoth of responsibilities and expectations. So he was yet on a, in, a, in a different level of, of pressure and, and commitments that, that I certainly didn't appreciate at the time. Um, and so, unfortunately, you know, he got paid, almost kind of like the Missouri, Missouri president, he got paid as kind of this insensitive white guy who didn't care about black, black people, which is, again, couldn't be further from the truth. You know, he was a good man with a good heart, with good intentions, but he could only do what the sum of his experience.
experiences gave him to work with. The boycott by the University of Missouri football team is similar to BAUL's pursuit. They are both part of a larger legacy of athletes taking a stand against racial injustice. The players also mentioned a key difference between them and the boycott by the Missouri football players. We didn't include our white teammates. And, and in retrospect, that was a huge mistake. It was a huge mistake because we didn't, we didn't give them the benefit of the doubt, the trust that they would understand our position. Maybe they wouldn't have, but we never gave them that chance. Both the boycott by the University of Missouri football players and BAUL's fight against the unequal treatment of black athletes reveal the power of sports to affect social change. Alice Palmer, who was Associate Dean of African American Student Affairs at the time, said, the lesson to be learned from BAUL is that a group can affect change by being factual, by being informed. We are refusing to be silent again. We are refusing For Medill Reports, Shane Monahan. What side are you on, my people? What side are you on? We are the freedom Let's move from campus to the environmental world. Earlier this year, Registered nurse Ramona Setnar spoke with Medill Reports about health concerns for a community in the southeast side of Chicago. In the middle of the neighborhood, there is a giant industrial shipping site with piles of black powder, and the stuff is causing serious health concerns. While studies have not proven a causal link between the powder and asthma, Setnar says the dust irritates people's lungs and breaks down natural defenses, which can lead to long-term lung issues. Reporters Amanda Kane and Kevin Stark visited with the community to talk about the piles and environmental justice broadly. On November 16th, a dozen activists sat down on a cold asphalt road, blocking trucks from entering an industrial shipping area. They were parents, teachers, and even an alderman. And they were there because of one thing, pet coke. A little background. Pet coke is a black powdery substance left after oil is refined. The site of the protest on the southeast side of Chicago stores giant open-air piles before it is sold and shipped to be used as fuel. Community members say their kids have higher rates of asthma and other diseases because of it. The stuff is still there as we speak, and it's still sitting on the ground, and it's still blowing in the neighborhoods, and especially on days like we've had with wind that's 30, 40 miles an hour, I guarantee you that stuff is blowing around and is in the air. That was Peggy Salazar. She runs the Southeast Environmental Task Force in Chicago. For example, with the pet coke, the real issue for us or for the community is the fact that the pet coke blankets our community. So that's their first concern, how it impacts us directly. Okay, so many times, though, our issues have broader implications, but we really address it on the local level. After talking to Salazar, Fellow reporter Kevin Stark and I took a look at the pet coke site. As we expected, the pile was enormous. There were originally two pet coke sites. Mayor Rahm Emanuel was quoted in a press release earlier this year telling KCBX to clean up or shut down. KCBX is the company that manages the site, owned by the Koch brothers. There was some success. One of the sites was closed this summer, but pet coke continues to move through the southern site. Although it's no longer stored, the Pet Coke's movement continues to diminish air quality for residents. 
Samuel Corona, a resident of the southeast side and a volunteer with Peggy's group, says there were people from all parts of the community at the protest. You know, we had a local uh, pastor from the United Methodist Church and a couple of the members from our coalition. And, you know, we see them chained, you know, holding hands. You know, they've got uh, little PVC pipe connectors so, you know, that they will not be moved. For Corona, Petcoke is personal. I live six blocks away from the actual Petcoke piles, so to me, when my kids are home, I don't want them to go outside. You know, it, I'm, I'm not even allowing them to be kids like I was, you know, run around outside and enjoy your, your open space out there. You know, we've become a community of uh, prisoners within our homes. Corona says the Petcoke has already affected his family's health. Um, I have a, a son that has uh, bronchitis and my daughter has asthma, uh, little bits of asthma and in the summer is when she re it really starts to uh, affect her. And this family is not an anomaly. And when we have, you know, an asthma van that visits every single uh, neighborhood elementary school within a two-mile to three-mile radius of these pet coke piles, that to us sends a message that there's something wrong with the air we breathe. I, I don't know of any other uh, school district that has that. Despite health concerns, Corona and Salazar also face pushback from within their community. For so long, you know, we've been battling with the city, we've been battling with the company, and even some of the residents because, you know, we were referred to as, uh, you know, environmental Nazis, job killers, you know, and, you know, it, to the point of, you know, during the summer we'd had door open, you know, just to get a breeze in here, and as somebody drives by, they stop to the stop sign, yell, job killers, and drive off, you know, so it, it just, it's, it's, at times, it's a really uh, intense struggle for us, you know. Salazar says their fight won't be over until the pet coke piles are totally gone. We're just like, we're not going to stop. We're not going to stop until they move the stuff out of our community. Those kinds of operations do not belong in residential areas, and that's what we're trying to make clear. Salazar and Corona fit into a larger group of environmental activists and scientists in Chicago and around the world who are fighting not only local environmental hazards, but climate change and its infinite possible effects. Kevin has been reporting on the intersection of science and activism and can explain more. Thanks, Amanda. This fall, I was reporting from a climate convention in southern Wisconsin. The scientists were talking about their role in the advocacy debate. One graduate student, Yoni Goldsmith, he works at Columbia University, told me scientists need to take a more active role. We have to be out there giving talks at every one of these, every one of these um, events and saying this is the science. We, this is what we work on. This is the data. I spoke with other scientists that had similar ideas to Yoni and a recent study conducted by the Pew Research Center found that nearly all scientists surveyed see lack of public education about science as a problem and support active engagement in the public policy debates. While the scientists I spoke with agree that public conversation matters, they do not agree on what to say. One researcher said he uses art to get the message out. Another said he talks about how renewable energy can make money. Others say it may be beneficial for scientists and activists to be specific about why climate change matters. We called up Moira Zellner, an associate professor in urban planning and policy at the University of Illinois at Chicago, to help explain the activist role. I wish that they would be remembered for clearly uh, basing their arguments on sound science that is being conducted in this country and abroad. But for Salazar and her community, 
the burden of petroleum use hit Southeast Chicago harder than other neighborhoods. First of all, many people do not have this stuff in their backyard. Okay, we all drive, we all use gasoline, but not everybody shares the same burdens. We share these burdens. What, it, what is the true cost of driving with gasoline? What is the true cost of using oil for as many things as we use it for? We should know those numbers. Not everyone has to worry about pet coke affecting their children's health. For Corona, using activism to get rid of pet coke is about his children. He wasn't especially drawn to environmentalism previously. You know, about a year and a half ago, I didn't know what pet coke was. You know, they sent me a couple of articles and they were like, you know, we would like for you to let us know if you think this is affecting yours. So as I'm reading it and I'm reading, you know, my son came by and he's like, well, what are you reading, Dad? So I showed him the emails and, you know, he's like, wow. As he read about the issues facing his neighbors, Corona's son realized his sister was affected too. Like, that's why Vivian's sick. That's why my daughter's got this asthma. And when, you know, to me, that just struck me like I've got to get involved. You know, because if he sees the reason why, I got to speak up for him and any other kid that doesn't know what's going on and why we are affected with this. More of, I've got to start this fight now. That way, when he's older at my age, he doesn't have to fight it for his children. From Medell Reports, I'm Kevin Stark. And I'm Amanda Kane. No justice, no peace. No graces, no peace. No justice, After a traumatic event, Therapy can be found in some of the most unlikely of places. Almost 10 years ago, Carly Butler was the victim of two horrific attacks, but has found a way to use that pain to advocate for others. We have to warn you that our next story includes graphic descriptions of an assault. If you are faint of heart, you may want to skip ahead about five minutes. Ariane Nettles tells the story. It was a whole different kind of pain on my body. But it was on my terms, so I was inflicting pain on my body, challenging myself in a different way, and that felt really good. A marathon is not a standard therapy after trauma, but Carly Butler used a 26.2-mile run as just that. After surviving not one, but two horrific attacks, Carly decided that the best way to deal with her scars, the ones that no one else could see, was to run the Chicago Marathon. Before the marathon, I was, aside from being really down and lost and just kind of trying to find my way. After being gruesomely attacked twice, Carly used running as a cathartic release. After the marathon, I, I felt accomplished and proud and a little crazy, but I wore my medal for three days because I felt so good about it. And then I felt more, I felt like, I felt like I got my, I got my mojo back, if that makes sense. Like my, my love for life had come back and I, I just saw a new path for myself. In 2006, Carly was assaulted in two separate but related attacks. In March, a group of men tried to kidnap her in a parking garage in the South Loop. She says they beat her, threw her in the trunk of her car, and threw acid on her. But Carly escaped and flagged down help. It was a cold day, and luckily her winter coat absorbed most of the acid. But a few months later, she was assaulted again in Skokie. This time, two women held her at gunpoint, and again, they threw acid on her, burning a third of her body. Her clothes were burned off. 
third-degree burns destroyed the nerves in her face, head, torso, arms, and upper thigh areas. Although the exact reason for the attack was never made clear, all signs pointed back to someone close to Carly, her boyfriend at the time. I was dating a guy who was involved with the streets, and I was not fully aware of the things that he had going on. She wasn't aware of the secret life he'd been living. And for that, Carly, someone who never even gets parking tickets, paid a high price. Carly's recovery was hard. She fought for her life in intensive care for six and a half weeks. And she endured over a dozen surgeries to rebuild the skin that the acid destroyed. Scars left from the acid and from the skin grafts to fix those areas cover over half of her body. She had a feeding tube to try to keep her body nourished because she needed triple the amount of calories every day. The sweat glands in the burned areas were destroyed, so she had trouble controlling her body temperature. And because she was in bed for a month and a half, she had to practice walking again. But these external burns were far from the most damaging. So it obviously turned my life upside down. Internally, Carly didn't know who she was anymore. It was hard for me to assume assume a whole new identity. Like I, I literally, I was one person one day and I was somebody completely different the next day, physically and emotionally. After all she'd gone through, it was that emotional damage that Carly struggled with the most. She needed to focus on something else, so she turned to something that she could control. So I had one horrible night where I did not sleep and I was thinking about what what it would be like if I weren't here anymore. And when I woke up the next morning, I felt guilty for that. I was like, I can't live like this. I just can't do it. And I knew I needed to channel my energy in a different way. When someone suggested that she run the Chicago Marathon, she knew it was what she needed. Not even realizing the amount of work that it would take, uh, I just wanted to do it so that I can, could inflict a different kind of pain on my body and discipline myself and focus. So that really helped. I had nothing to lose, you know? I just kept saying, keep going, keep going, keep going. For Medill, I'm Ariane Nettles. Last up, we're going back to school. Instead of at the college level, this time it's high schoolers speaking out. The budget and pension crisis of Chicago public schools is frustrating people, from teachers to school staff to now even students. Reporter Kellen Lyons introduces us to four students who have been taking the fight out of the classroom and into the streets in an effort to bring equal funding for Chicago's public schools. I'm involved with many type of organizations, from tutoring freshmen to like having my own clubs and, and helping others with like 
things that you need to learn for the outside world, like doing resumes, doing one-on-one -on -one interviews. That's Evelyn Solis, a senior at Kelly High School. I'm president of Skills USA, where we teach you basically business-related skills. She is really busy. I'm also part of Key Club, which we help the needy, like in third-world countries. And with just a semester left in high school, Evelyn has been working on something bigger, something citywide. We wanted something that all students could get involved with. That's Matthew Mata, a senior at Walter Payton College Prep, a high school in Chicago's Old Town Northern neighborhood. It's one of the best-ranked high schools not only in Chicago, but in the entire state of Illinois. Matthew has organized two protests for CPS students from across the city, one on October 28th and one on November 13th, and consulted with fellow organizers for another protest on November 6th. These are students from schools all across the city, from top-ranked schools like Peyton to resource-strapped ones like Kelly. Ultimately, the students' protests boil down to one demand, according to Kennedy High School junior Caitlin Batang. We just want equal education for everyone across the city. But schools across Chicago aren't getting equal resources. Matthew says he's heard complaints that the budget cuts at schools like his aren't representative of the budget cuts that are facing students who attend regular neighborhood high schools. The thing is about selective enrollment schools, they are selective, so they usually choose their own students. Selective enrollment schools tend to be better resourced and have less high-need students than local neighborhood schools that have open enrollment admissions. We do need more resources to help um, to help provide for all for our different variety of students. While selective enrollment schools, they they just worry about well, they don't have to worry about problems like ours. Problems like dirty schools, like Evelyn Solis explains about Kelly High School. There is a big hole in the wall in the cafeteria. There is a lot of cockroaches. It's really dirty. Or like Caitlin Batung describes at Kennedy High School. In some classes, we, we have a lack of desks. And because of that, sometimes kids need to sit on the, vent, the vents and like learn from there. Even if the students in Caitlin's classes do have desks to sit in, they might have out-of-date books. We use textbooks from like 20 years ago to study math and physics. CPS budget cuts are hurting the students who need the most help. According to the Illinois State Board of Education, 83% of students at Batung School, Kennedy, are from low-income families, while just over a quarter are ready for college coursework. It's the same for Solis's school. Kelly High School is 94% low-income, and just 20% of those graduating are ready to take college classes. Those numbers are way different than Matthew's school, Walter Payton College Prep, where only a third of students are from low-income families, but a staggering 96% are ready for college coursework. Denise Hernandez, a junior from Selective Enrollment School Lindblom Math and Science Academy, says it isn't about the divide between open and selective enrollment schools. I think it's our job as like student ambassadors, I guess you could say, to bridge the gap between selective enrollment schools, neighborhood schools, and charter schools. I think it's our job to sort of bring us together and say, let's put that aside. It's time to come together and fight for one cause. Matthew says he thinks he has an obligation as a student of a selective enrollment school to educate the public on the funding issues that open enrollment neighborhood schools face. We have to be advocates. We have to be people who are able to speak on various um, issues or try to like inform the public um, or even selective enrollment students the, 
the challenges that um, neighborhood schools um, kids face. So students from selective and open enrollment schools alike have been joining together in the loop to march, sing, and perform spoken word poetry to express their frustration with CPS. And Matthew says they've focused on sending a message to Springfield lawmakers. We're asking for the language in SB 318 to be changed or amended so that it can actually um, provide long-term solutions as well as um, alleviating the current crisis. SB 318 is a bill that freezes the property taxes that primarily fund the city's public schools for two years and requires the state to pay $200 million for the Chicago Public Schools teacher pensions. The problem is, Illinois can't afford it, and freezing the property tax would crash the state's school funding. Evelyn Solis says all the students are fighting for the same thing. An education equality. And that what's important is what unites them, not what divides them. It doesn't matter whether you're from Payton or from Kelly or from Curie, we have to work together to make a difference. If not, we're gonna get nowhere. From Adil, I'm Kellen Lyons. And that's all we have. Make sure to check out all our stories on MedillaReports.org. Be on the lookout for our next show. You can check us out on Twitter, at Chicago, and on Facebook and Instagram, at Reports. You can listen to future episodes of the audio show by subscribing to iTunes, Stitcher, or finding us on SoundCloud. Special thanks to reporters Shane Monahan, Amanda Kane, and Kevin Lyons. Kevin wrote this week's show. Ariane produced the show. Protest audio was recorded by Jasmine Sen and Raquel Zaldivar. Music in the piece about Carly Butler is by Robert Anderson. You can check out more music and stories from him on his podcast, Awful Grace. For Medill, I'm Ariane Nettles. And for Medill, I'm Kevin Stark. Thanks, Thanks for, for listening. listening.